Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 with me. As you turn there, just again, I want to invite you to come out this evening. I think it's a very, obviously, very big deal to bring on another staff person, even though it may feel like uh, the quoters have already been on staff based on their their uh, ministry in our church already, but I think it's exciting. And it's a good thing for a church to be uh, able to come together and, and celebrate and, and talk through together. Uh, also this evening, I failed to mention this earlier, but uh, we'll be having our kind of a regular evening service. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit about the, the doctrine of, of the Bible and, and the canon, how we got Scripture, and the Guatemala mission team will also be presenting their uh, kind of some things about their mission trip, and so that's kind of exciting to come and, and hear about that ministry as well, and, and then I think, believe there'll be a, a kind of a, a short update on where we are with uh, the building ministry, and we'll be voting some people into membership, affirming their membership, so just a, a neat time as a family this evening. I encourage you to come out to Camp Good News. There's directions in your, your bulletin. Well, now, if you would please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke chapter 12. We've been going through this, this section of Scripture where Jesus is talking to his disciples and the crowds are surrounding them, and we come to this part of verse 49, remembering that Jesus has just talked about the need to be watchful, waiting for the Master's return, the Son of Man's return. Then we come to this, these words in verse 49 through 53. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray that God would continue to direct our hearts toward him. Father, we thank you for these words. They're difficult words for us to understand, and yet they're words that are crucial for us to understand for life and to follow after you in godliness, to be who you desire us to be bring you glory, and so we we pray that you'd open our hearts and soften them as we come into contact with your truth, and I pray that you'd help me to deliver your word clearly and to to allow your Holy Spirit to work through it in the lives of the people in our church, and we're grateful for this body, we're grateful for the things you're doing in the lives of of our people, and we're grateful for the opportunity to uh, study your word together this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, this morning we come across some words of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12 that seem somewhat at odds with the Christmas season. What does Jesus say in verse 51 here? He says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, those words seem at odds with the Christmas cards I've been receiving, right? What do they say? That peace on earth. And then there's a, you know, a picture of a star or some angels singing with trumpets and a little baby Jesus in the manger. Peace on earth, the Christmas cards say. Or angels we have heard on high. Oh, I'm sorry, hark the herald angels sing, right? Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And so what do we see during the Christmas season is this, this message of, of Jesus Christ being a, a bringer of peace. And then we come to verse 51, and it seems to be a little bit of a contradiction where Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring division, division on earth. And that's not something you see on a Christmas card, right? Division on earth and like a little sword or something. But the idea that Jesus came to bring peace is not just in Christmas carols or on Christmas cards. It's also a very biblical idea. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says we've been justified with 
uh, we've been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea that Jesus Christ brings peace is a very biblical idea. The angels proclaim it in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The Christmas carols sing it. And then we come to this passage here in Luke 12, and, and Jesus says, no, I, I didn't come to bring, you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The two things, the two concepts seem to be at odds with one another. At, at least there's some sort of tension here, right? Do you think that I came to bring peace? No. Jesus Christ came to bring peace? Yes. How do we resolve that tension? I'm not going to tell you yet. Before we go through the text, though, let me just say a couple things. First of all, this idea of peace can mean several different things in Scripture. Sometimes peace means the absence of physical harm. We're able to lie down in peace and in safety, the psalmist tells us. Sometimes peace means freedom from financial insecurity. We have, we have financial peace. Sometimes in Scripture, this term peace means simply there, there's no longer open hostility between two parties who are at war. And most importantly in Scripture, when we see the term peace, it refers to this reconciliation that happens between man and, and God. There's been peace, and this is the peace that, that Jesus brings. He, he reconciles us to God. Where there was conflict, now there's this harmonious relationship and there's this friendship. There's peace. That relationship with God is established through His Son, Jesus Christ. Two years ago, as we begin going through the Gospel of Luke, I, I told you that there's a very high probability that there'll be some things that we go through in the Gospel of Luke that will make you uncomfortable. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to encounter a Jesus that is sometimes at odds with the Jesus that we've pictured. All of us have a tendency to take attributes of Jesus and, and highlight those attributes of Jesus that we're comfortable with and kind of minimize those characteristics of Jesus that we're not comfortable with. There's kind of this North American evangelical Jesus, or there's kind of a, a liberal Jesus, and there's, there's a Muslim Jesus, and there's all these different types of Jesuses out there, and some are more close to the truth than others, obviously, but all of us have a tendency to take attributes of Jesus' character that we agree with and emphasize those attributes and minimize those characteristics of Jesus that are least likely to uh, bring us pleasure in the flesh. My encouragement to you two years ago is the same as my encouragement this morning as we go through what could be a, a difficult portion of Scripture, that we would take what God's Word says and we would remove any idolatrous expectations we have of Jesus and allow the truth about Jesus and His character to change us, and that we would be responsive to the truth. And so as we look at this tension between a Jesus who does bring peace and a Jesus who says, I don't come to bring peace, but rather division, that we would remove our conceptions of what we think Jesus should be like and allow the Jesus of Scripture to be the Jesus that we worship, we respond to, that we allow to change our hearts. Before I begin going through the text, there's also one more thing I want to say, and that's uh, there are kind of two groups here that I'm concerned about this morning as we go through what are some tough verses. One group are those of you who are, um, I don't know how to put it, you're very peace-loving people, which is a good thing. There, there are good attributes of being a peace-loving people, right? You're, you're, you're people who don't like to make waves, and the idea of, of dissension and argument really makes you nervous, okay? And so there might be some things that I say this morning as we talk about division and the division that Jesus brings that make you go, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. Can't we just all be friends? And, and why do we have to say mean things about other people? Uh, you need to grow a spiritual backbone, okay? Uh, I, and I, I say that in love. Now, there are other Anytime I say something mean, I just add, and I'm saying that in love, and people, oh, okay. Um, the, the second group of people I'm worried about are, are those of us, and maybe I fall more into this t camp sometimes, uh, are those of us 
who um, we sometimes love contentiousness. We kind of like to take the truth and we say, boy, I'm, I'm passionate about the truth. And really, sometimes what we're passionate about is, is being right. We like to take these theological hand grenades and just kind of chunk them at different groups and, and see what happens. Uh, we need to be very careful this morning, okay? Jesus is going to talk about divisiveness, but it's a divisiveness for the glory of God. It's not divisiveness for divisiveness' sake, okay? And so both kind of groups, and all of us tend to sometimes fall into one or the other or both of these groups, need to be very careful as we talk about division and about peace and the type of peace that God, the true type of peace that God desires, and the true type of division that is sometimes necessary, okay? So, Let's remove our preconceived notions about who Jesus should be, the type of Jesus we want him to be, and let's look at what Jesus tells us himself about his mission. And we're going to look at three truths that Jesus tells us about why he has come. As he's talking to this group of people, he tells them three reasons that he has come. The first reason that Jesus has come is to bring judgment. Look at verse 49 with me. Jesus has come to bring judgment. That's the first truth. Verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I, I wish that it were already started, Jesus says here in verse 49. Now, three things that I want you to notice about verse 49, kind of three things that are here in this verse. The first thing is notice that Jesus announces his purpose. He says, I have come. Now, what does that mean whenever Jesus says, I have come? He says it several times throughout the Gospels when he's trying to help people understand why he's there. And he says it at very crucial times in his ministry. He'll be around people, and the people will begin to think, yeah, we understand why Jesus is here. We understand Jesus' ministry. We understand his mission. And then Jesus will say this, I have come, and then he'll tell them something about his ministry and his mission that perhaps they didn't understand beforehand. For example, Luke 5.32, as he's invited Levi, Matthew, to follow him, and the Pharisees and lawyers are, are shocked that he's eating at the, at the home of a tax collector, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 19.10, as he's talking about Zacchaeus, he says, I, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 5.43, I've, I've come in my Father's name. John 18, 37, Pilate is talking to Jesus, and Jesus answers and says, you say that I am king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Whenever Jesus uses that phrase, I have come, he will announce something about his ministry, he'll announce something about his purpose that people around him may not have understood. And the reason that he does that at certain times in his ministry is because people have a misconception about who he is, and so he's saying, hey, look, I have come, and then he announces something about his purpose. When I was in college, you know, around 20 years old, I had trouble going to stores sometimes because people kept on thinking that I was an employee at the store. You know, a guy that's 20 years old, and people would look at him and say, hey, you know, can you help me with this whatever? One time I was, it wasn't always their fault, one time I was at a store, and I was looking at some display, and uh, someone came up to me and said, uh, where are the CDs or something like that? Um, CDs are these little devices that you used to store music on before you started pirating things. Um, so I, I said, I looked at them, I'm like, uh, they're right over there. And as, then another person came up to me, I'm like, why are all these people coming up to me asking me for things? And, and I, I realized that I was wearing a red polo shirt and khakis in Target. And... Um, <laughs> Not their fault. Really. They, they saw me. There's a guy giving people directions, wearing a red polo shirt and khakis in Target. This must be an employee. And so I finally had to stop people and say, look, I don't work here. Okay? Um, and I got fired. Um, now, people saw me and had some misconceptions about me. They, they thought they understood enough about why I was there to ask me questions. Jesus People see him, they understand some vague conception about who the Messiah is to be, what he's supposed to do, and so they begin to make some assumptions about why Jesus has come. So Jesus, at strategic times in his ministry, throughout the Gospels, will announce, look, I have come, and then say something about his purpose, okay? That's what he's doing here. That's the first thing I want you to notice about verse 49. The second thing is I want you to notice what his purpose is. What does he say about his purpose? 
He says, I came, why? To cast fire on the earth. What does this fire represent? This fire represents judgment. The fire represents judgment. Oftentimes in the Gospel of Luke, we see fire related to judgment. Luke 3.9, he talks about things being thrown into the fire. Luke 3.17, he says that God's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat and to his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke 9.54, remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, say, hey, Jesus, you want us to cast fire down at this Samaritan village? So Jesus says, I, I've come. He gives a purpose statement. The second thing to notice about this verse is he said the, says the purpose of his coming is for judgment to deal with sin. And the third thing to notice about this verse, verse 49, is that Jesus wants to bring this judgment. That's kind of peculiar to me. He says, I've come. I've come to cast fire on the earth. I've come to bring this judgment. And I wish that it had already begun. I wish that this process of bringing judgment upon the world had already begun to take place. Why is he excited about judgment? That really stands at odds with our culture today, right? The idea of God's judgment, God's wrath is a very negative thing. And the idea that, that it would be good that God's judgment would be accomplished on the earth fills many people with a sense of unease. Jesus, though, here says, I, I wish that it had already started. I wish this process of God's judgment being meted out upon the earth had already begun. I, I wish it was already kindled. Why does he say that? Well, again, I, I'm not going to answer that question yet, okay? Instead, I, I want to focus on this. I want to focus on what's your response going to be to this truth that Jesus has come to bring judgment? What's going to be the response of your heart as you consider this truth that, that Jesus has come and Jesus has come to bring judgment? September of 2008, there, were these, there was this train that was on the tracks and this engineer was, ran a, a red signal on the track and he was unaware of, of what was going on around him. And In fact, moments after he had this, this horrific train wreck in which 25 people lost their lives, he received a message from the dispatcher warning him of what was going on, but that message came too late. Oftentimes, in horrific accidents, horrific events, we can see that if only communication had been better, if only people had understood certain messages before this tragedy happened, the tragedy could have been, could have been averted or at least minimized. After 9-11, we found out a lot about miscommunication that had taken place between various governmental agencies and, and different international agencies. And if only some of these pieces had been put together, 9-11 could have been averted. Or, or some of the disasters after Katrina could have been minimized if communication had been more effective or if people had responded to communication or the Challenger disaster, on and on and on. If only people had understood sooner what the danger was and communication had been more effective. I don't want you to understand the true mission of Jesus too late. Some of us have this conception of, of, of Christmas and, and Jesus' role at, at Christmas, and he's this, this beautiful baby that, that brings peace on earth, and, and we kind of think about his, his ministry and how much he cared about people and how much he, he healed them, and all those things are true, but understand this, Jesus wants the people that he's talking to here in Luke chapter 12 to understand the reality that he has also come to bring judgment. There's coming a day where the Son of Man is going to bring judgment, and judgment is going to be meted out upon the earth, and those of us who are in line of God's wrath and his judgment need to understand that this day is coming. Jesus wants us to understand that truth. 
understand, remember the context here. This is occurring in, in Luke chapter 12. Here in Luke chapter 12, he's just told us about the coming of the, the Son of Man and how we need to be prepared for him. And he says, look, I, I've come. Part of my purpose is coming is to bring judgment on the earth, and I wish that it had already been kindled. I don't want this to be true of you and your relationship to the gospel, that you understood the gospel message too late. And encourage any person here who has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins to, to do so now. To remove your preconceived notion about who you believe Jesus should be and see who Jesus reveals himself to be here in Luke 12. The first thing Jesus tells us about his mission is, look, I've come to bring judgment. The second thing I want you to see here that Jesus says about his mission is Jesus has come to suffer. Verse 50, verse 50, Jesus says, I, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, Jesus has just said, I, I've come to bring judgment. Now, here's kind of an interesting truth. The first person who receives the fullness of the, the judgment of God is going to be who? It's going to be Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the only one in some senses who ever receives the fullness of the judgment of God. Jesus says here in verse 50 that he's, he's come to, and he has this baptism to be baptized with. What, is, what does baptism mean? Well, some people have said, well, maybe he's referring to his earthly baptism with water. And well, we, we know that's not the case because he's talking about a, a future baptism and his water baptism has already taken place. You say, well, maybe he's talking about the baptism that, that Christians are going to undergo as, as they identify themselves with Jesus Christ. And, and that's, it's related to that, but it's not that because he's talking about a baptism that he personally is un, going to undergo. Sometimes in our, our culture, baptism has become associated with going into kind of like a little, uh, you know, a nice little neat dunking booth, and you go underneath this nice, clean, warm water, and then you, you come back up, and and that's baptism, right? It is, but baptism, that, that event of us going into the water and coming back up, symbolizes something even more important. It symbolizes our identification with Christ in his death and suffering. And oftentimes in Scripture, this, this imagery of water is an imagery of suffering. We're oh, baptism means to be immersed in, and sometimes in Scripture we see this idea of, of being immersed in water as being immersed in suffering and persecution, being overwhelmed by it. Psalm 18.4, the psalmist says, the, the torrents of destruction assailed me. Psalm 18.16 says, God sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of, of many waters, these waters that had overwhelmed me. Psalm 69, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have, have come up to my neck. I, I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and, and the floods sweep over me. In the book of Jonah, Jonah cries out to God and says, You've cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And, and Jesus is talking here about being immersed in suffering. He says, look, I have this baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. I'm going to be immersed in this, this time of, of suffering. And Jesus says, and, and boy, I, I, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. Or man, I'm going to put that thing off. I'm not looking forward to that, and certainly there's a sense in which he's not excited about the suffering part, but what does he say? He says, I'm distressed until it is accomplished. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is, look, I've, I've come to bring judgment, and I've come to, bring the to experience the judgment first myself, and I'm anxious to do this. I have this baptism in suffering and persecution to undergo, and how distressed I am until I accomplish this. Why would Jesus look forward to this baptism of suffering? Because he had a single-minded focus on the glory of God and a passion and a zeal to see God glorified as sinners were reconciled to God. Two points of application for us, I believe, as we think about this truth that Jesus Christ was devoted to the cross. The first is that Jesus provides us with a model for suffering. In 1 Peter 
chapter 2, Peter tells us this, to this you've been called to suffer, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds you've been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Jesus Christ has come to suffer. Jesus says, I, I've come to suffer. And one application for us is that's a model for how you and I are to handle difficulty in our lives. As Christ didn't complain, but merely bore it, we ourselves are to emulate our Savior's example. That's, that's one application. Another application, I believe this is, is critical, if Jesus Christ, as he contemplated the cross, had a zeal for the glory of God, how much more should you and I have an equal zeal for the glory of God? If Jesus Christ has a passion to see you and I reconciled to God and living lives of righteousness, how much more should that motivate us to live lives of righteousness? that we would fulfill the purpose that Christ had for us in bringing about our salvation. Jesus says, verse 49, I, I've come, I've come to cast fire, I, I've come to bring judgment. Second thing he tells us about his mission here is, is that I, I've come to suffer. And the third thing that he tells us about his mission, his purpose, says, I've come to bring division. Jesus has come to bring division. Verse 51, Jesus says, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division, for from now on in one house there will be five divided. The picture there is of five people in a house. There's a a father and a mother and a daughter and a son and then a son's wife. And he says, there's going to be these five people in a home and, and three are going to be against two and, and two are going to be against three and they'll be divided. Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There in this, this home where there's supposed to be this cohesive family unit, there's going to be division. In this culture, in this culture, a family was supposed to be the, the tightest, most cohesive unit. Father, mother, daughter, son would live together, and, and oftentimes when another person married into the family, they'd simply build them another apartment, and they'd continue living together. Family was incredibly important. It wasn't just important in this culture. Biblically, there's a call to be devoted to parents. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6, quoting Exodus? He says, children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. It's a very important thing in Scripture to honor father and mother. So look at verse 51, and we see a very interesting verse, as we've, we've already talked about, and we see kind of two parts of this thought. The first part is kind of a correction. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? And if you and I were standing before Jesus and, and he said, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? We go, um, yes, right? What does scripture tell us? Let me read some verses to you. Psalm 72 verse 7 says, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Isaiah 11 9 says, they shall not hurt or destroy and in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Luke 179 says that Jesus has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The angels in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take care 
I have overcome the world. I could go on and on, right? Colossians 1.20, through Christ, all things were reconciled, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. There's a tension here, right? Scripture tells us again and again, I've come to bring peace, peace on earth. We're reconciled with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Jesus here in Luke 12, verse 51 says, do you think that I came to bring peace? And we say, yeah. What Jesus is doing here is a rhetorical feature called a mashal. It's a saying in which there's kind of some paradoxical truths. And and the first part of the statement isn't negated. But what, what it's saying is, look, this isn't the only thing that I've come to do, and the highlight in this saying is on the second half of the saying. He's kind of using hyperbole to say, look, do you think that this is the only reason that I've come? No, I tell you, but also an important component of my mission is division. My peace that I bring isn't a a universal peace. There's also division to it. The word that he uses here for division means a a thorough dividing. It's dividing into factions. It's, it's separation that occurs. And what's the cause of the separation? And here we get into a little bit of the resolution of the tension. What is it that can divide a father against his son? What is it that divides a son against his father, a mother against her daughter, Now, it seems a little less amazing to think of mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, but anyway, I digress. Um, What is it that causes that sort of division? What is it? It's the gospel. And as important as the family unit is, as important as as peace and, and good relationships are, The demands of the gospel go far greater than the demands we have with our family. The demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ are so great, they divide the entire world into two groups, those who will respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he's talking to these crowds, these thousands of people, he says, look, Do you you think that I came to bring peace on earth, some sort of generic unity? No, I tell you, but I have come, and my coming is going to cause division. That is a hard message at any time of the year. It's a hard message, especially at Christmas. What's Christmas about? Christmas is about everybody coming together and and loving each other. And and yeah, you believe one thing, and I believe another. And and Jesus says, look, 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 look. There's division. And how a person responds to me is going to divide a person into one of two groups. Two groups that cannot coexist throughout eternity. It's a hard truth. This reality, though, helps us understand the tension here. There's peace for some as Jesus comes, but not peace for all. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, says, peace is undoubtedly the result of the gospel wherever it is believed and received. But wherever there are hearts, excuse me, wherever there are hearers of the gospel who are hardened and penitent and determined to have their sins, the very message of peace becomes the cause of division. The cause of division. The demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ are so great that they separate all of humanity humanity into one of two groups, those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who refuse to do so. In fact, in 1 Peter, what do we read? In 1 Peter, we read something very important about the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter, Peter writes, It stands in Scripture, God says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. I'm laying in Zion a stone. 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And he's talking there about Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The people who respond to Jesus Christ and place their faith in him, this stone becomes a cornerstone. All of our lives are, are built around the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes our all-consuming passion. But for other people, this stone that becomes our cornerstone becomes the stone over which they stumble. Now, why is that a good thing? Why is it so important to understand this reality that, that Christ divides? Why does Jesus say, uh, I, I've come to cast fire on the earth? Why do that? Why be so excited about wanting this fire to be kindled? Why is he so anxious for judgment to take place? Why is division a good thing? Let me give you, as I've thought about that question this week, let me give you six reasons that I believe this judgment and division are good things. Why I believe the judgment and division that Christ brings are good things. Number one, judgment and division are good because they confirm the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. It brings him glory. Keep your finger in the Gospel of Luke and turn one book over to the right to the book of John. And look at John chapter 9. I've mentioned before, John chapter 9 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals this man who was born blind. And as he, born, as he heals this man who was born blind, we, we see the story and this interaction between the Pharisees and, and uh, the Jews with this man who was born blind. They, they don't believe him. They call his parents and they, and they say, look, does, was your son really born blind? And, and how does he now see? They say, we, we don't know. He was born blind. Parents say, we don't want to get involved in it. We don't want any controversy. And then the Pharisees get upset with this, this, this man who was born blind because they want him to say that Jesus was a, was a sinner. This man won't do it. The man born blind refuses to call Jesus a sinner. And the Pharisees respond by kicking him out of the synagogue. He's separated from fellowship with the rest of the Jewish community. And then, verse 35 of John chapter 9, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And this is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. This man born blind who has lost everything for the sake of following Jesus Christ says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man responds in worship of Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, here's an important verse, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees heard them and heard these things and said, hey, are you saying we're blind? Short answer, Jesus says, yes. Do you see why division is necessary? How can we possibly say that those who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ are unified with those who see his value? This man born blind is willing to worship Jesus despite the displeasure that it causes other people because he sees the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. This is why the entire world is divided into two groups, those who see the value of Jesus Christ and those who do not, who reject him. Apart from division, apart from separation existing, this contrast is not as stark. The value of Jesus Christ is not exalted. Division and judgment are necessary for the value of Jesus Christ to be manifested for all the universe to see. Another reason, you can keep your finger there in John 9 if you want, there at the end of John 9, because I'm going to go right back to it. Reason number two, judgment and division are good, is because the judgment and division show the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Right after Jesus says these things to the Pharisees in verse 41, 
chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Apart from division existing between those who've responded rightly to Jesus Christ and those who have not, apart from that division, people don't see the exclusivity of finding salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Third reason that I believe that it's so important for judgment and division to take place, why judgment and division are a good thing, is because judgment and division point people to the way, the exclusivity, point people to the way, to the right way to live one's life. And in fact, Christianity, before it was called, before Christians were called Christians, they were called people belonging to the way. If you want to, if you're taking notes, and blessed are the note takers, right? Acts, here are some passages that talk about the way, Christians being called the way. Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Acts 19, 9, uh, Acts 22, 4, Acts 24, 14. All throughout the book of Acts and other places too, we see people who are Christians referred to as followers of the way. And apart from division, apart from separation existing between those who see the value of Christ and, and those who do not, apart from that division that Christ brings, people don't see the right way to live. The right way to honor God. Fourth reason that judgment and division are good, I believe, is because judgment and division create a truer, more beautiful unity in Jesus Christ. They create a truer, more beautiful unity in the person of Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians, we see that our unity was, took place through Jesus Christ. In verse 14 of Ephesians 2, it says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That is an incredibly important passage. Again, it's Second, it's Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 14 through 16. Now, what I'm going to say, what I'm about to say um, may be extremely offensive to some of you. But I believe it's very important to understand. And please listen to all of what I'm about to say. I'm reading a, just just uh, kind of almost through a book called Four Views on the Spectrum of Evangelicalism. What is evangelicalism, or as I would say, what is Christianity? What does it really mean to be a Christian, one who's responded to the gospel? And what's interesting is, is different evangelicals have different understandings of, of what it means to be a Christian, but I believe it comes down to this. A person is a Christian who is understood the reality that they are sinners, has understood that Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for their sins, rose from the dead, and has placed their faith, listen to this, their faith alone in Jesus Christ for their salvation. That's a Christian. And in our culture today, not just today, throughout history, there's been a temptation to not stay faithful to that message. To seek to have spiritual unity with, with people who would deny that message. I believe it's very important to understand, look, Christ brings division. And not everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ is a Christian. Not every person who says the name Jesus Christ has responded rightly to the gospel. And our unity in spiritual matters with people who reject the simplicity of the gospel cannot exist. That's a hard message. You know, one of the controversies that surrounded the Republican presidential nomination uh, so far this season has been uh, one of the candidates who's, who's a Mormon, right? And one one of the candidates, or someone that was associated with one of the candidates, questioned whether or not this, this Mormon, Mitt Romney, was, was a Christian. And when he said he wasn't a Christian, just 
people couldn't believe. How in the world could you say such a, a mean, judgmental thing? Are you kidding me? Mormonism is not Christianity. Mormons believe a different gospel than what Jesus Christ proclaims. Now, can you vote for a Mormon? Sure. But can you call a Mormon a Christian? No. Who's a Christian? A Christian is a person who responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a and Jesus Christ brings division. You know, it's interesting here that the, the word that Jesus uses here in Luke chapter 12 this, to describe the division, it's not a division that these people cause themselves. It's a division that Jesus Christ himself brings. It says, they will be divided. In other words, it's a passive voice here. They're, they're, they're being divided by something else. And that division is the gospel. You and I don't decide, boy, we don't like these people, and so we're going to be divided with them. The gospel itself divides us spiritually. Other evangelicals who deny the gospel, we don't recognize as Christians because they've denied the gospel. They've divided themselves. The Roman Catholic Church, I believe, teaches a, a false gospel. It teaches that one is reconciled to God not through faith alone, but through works. It muddies the gospel. It's legalistic, not the gospel. That's a hard, offensive truth. The gospel is important enough to divide families. Now, does that mean we don't like people who aren't Christians? Of course not. Does it mean we're excited about division? Of course not. Does it mean that we divide amongst ourselves because of every disagreement we have about different biblical interpretations? Of course not. We have great fellowship with people who believe different things about baptism. We have great fellowships with people who believe different things about the end times. But the gospel is a message that always divides. And that's a good thing because the value of Jesus Christ must be exalted and the exclusivity of the gospel must be maintained. Fifth thing here about judgment and division being good, a judgment and division are good because they confirm God's word. God is not a liar. And whenever he talked about the coming judgment and the reality of, of sin and its punishment, he was telling the truth. Malachi 3.5, talks, God talks about drawing near to judgment. He says, I'll be a swift witness against those who've practiced evil. God doesn't lie. And the reality of judgment and division bring out the truth of God's word. And then finally, the sixth reason that judgment and division are good is that they provide reward and relief for the believer. In 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 1, Paul would say this to those believers who are undergoing tough times. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So you became an example, of, example to all the believers in Macedonia. I'm sorry, that's not the right, uh, that's not the right passage. What is, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, sorry. That's also a very good verse, though, by the way. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that uh, God is, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that good? Because as Christ is exalted, those who have placed their faith in him are going to see, receive relief from oppression and reward for faithfulness. And that's a beautiful thing. J.C. Ryle, quoting him again, says, if we expect to see people of one heart and one mind before they are converted, we shall be continually disappointed. Thousands of well-meaning persons nowadays are continually crying out for more unity among Christians. And to attain this, they're ready to sacrifice almost anything and throw overboard even sound doctrine if by so doing they can secure peace. And 
He wrote this 150 years ago. Such people would do well to remember that even gold may be bought too dear, and that peace is useless. Peace is useless if purchased at the expense of truth. And surely they've forgotten the words of Christ, I came not to send peace, but division. Are we as believers to relish in conflict? Are we to relish in the idea, well, hey, our church has got it right, and no other churches have got it right, and I'm so excited that we're in the church that's got it right. No, that's, that's ridiculous, and that's not what Jesus is saying here. The idea of disunity is a very troubling, troubling reality. And yet, along with the message of the angel in Luke 2.14, that Christ has come to bring peace, there's also the message that division is going to accompany that proclamation of peace. Simeon will tell Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that's going to be opposed. In other words, Jesus Christ is going to bring opposition. Luke 1, 51 and 53, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There is division that Christ brings. We all have conceptions of what we think Jesus should do, what he should be like. Jesus is clear here in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, I divide. I divide. He could have, as these people, as these throngs, these multitudes came to him and showed kind of a, a willingness to be around Jesus. He could have said, hey, this is awesome. Let's find a, a message. Let's find something that can, can unite all these people. They all like me. They like me for different reasons. Some of them totally don't understand who I am. It doesn't matter. You're all kind of, you're kind of, all kind of like Jesus. Let's start a Jesus song, right? He says, no, you all need to understand something. First of all, I've come to bring judgment. And I wish that we're already accomplished. You need to watch out, warning. Secondly, you need to know I've come to suffer. I've come to suffer for you so that you can be reconciled to God. And you understand that as I bring this message, it's going to cause division. And some of you are going to be divided against your parents. Some of you are going to be divided against your children. And the reason that is a good thing is because I am worth it. There is a surpassing value in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I must not seek unity and peace at the expense of failing to glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our desire is to exalt him, exalt him. And as we exalt him, to call those around us to exalt him as well so we can have a true unity through faith alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, the one who brings us perfect unity through faith in you. We thank you for the gospel we pray that as we think this Christmas season about reconciliation with you, we'd be faithful to proclaim what truly reconciles us to you. It's not warm thoughts about you. It's not thinking nice things about Jesus, but it's coming to him and responding in faith alone to our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help that to be the message that unites us, the message that we proclaim lovingly and with a desire to see all men brought into relationship with you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen.